Amen. Thank you, Ms. Tracy. Haven't we been blessed this morning already? Wow. And uh, the choir, uh, y'all just warmed us up. This stage is like on fire right now. And um, really want to invite you back tonight. They've been working really hard to put together a worship experience for you tonight um, that's really going to honor the Lord. And uh, you're not going to want to miss that at 6 o'clock. There's my little commercial for that, but wow, um, pretty awesome. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Titus. Here in the New Testament, very short letter that Paul wrote to one of his, um, one, one of the young men he was mentoring in the faith and mentoring in, in ministry, part of the pastoral epistles where Paul gets to sort of, he's giving back and, and, and encouraging and there's words for ministry, there's words for the church, there's words for leadership, there's words just for our general spiritual growth just packed into these, uh, these short books, these short, that, which were originally letters. This morning we're going to continue our study of the Advent and, and looking ahead. And the theme this year comes from 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. And last week we looked at faith. Our faith is in Christ, and that is we trust in Him, we believe in Him. He is our rock and our anchor, and we saw from Hebrews 11 that this faith is one that has been tested. It has been proved by generation after generation since the beginning of time. Faith is our our bedrock, but hope is our future. Just as the darkness cannot destroy our faith, this darkness in which we live cannot extinguish our hope. Hope is embedded into life. Hope is embedded, and we see this even in our our own culture that is not, many times, not following the Lord, not, not trusting in Him, but even Even just part of the human experience, hope is there. This week marks episode 7. There are people lining up, camping out in California right now to watch a movie. Yes. Christmas for geeks. I love it. That started before I was born in 1977, Star Wars, Episode 4, titled A New Hope. Yes. One of the most famous lines in that movie from Princess Leia. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. Right? You're laughing. Hope is embedded in our own... We laugh, but hope is embedded in our culture. We want to hope. We want to hope about the future. And throughout history, mankind has observed, whether you believe in the Lord or not, mankind has observed that hope is indispensable for our very survival. The French philosopher Marcel remarked, hope is for the soul what breathing is for the living organism. When you start to lose hope, you begin to die. 
What does, we see that in our world, but what does Scripture teach us about hope? Because in culture, hope is a dream. It's an idea. And we even have these like pithy little phrases. We hope against hope, whatever that means. But Scripture teaches us that hope is not a dream. Hope is not an idea. Hope is a person. Hope at Bethlehem, hope came down in the form of a person. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Paul affirms this in Titus chapter 2. And we're just going to zero in on verses 11 through 14 this morning. In which he writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let's pray together as we meditate on God's word this morning. Dear Lord, we thank you. We thank you you did not leave us in darkness, but you are the light and you came to bring light. Lord, we thank you that you did not leave us without hope, for you are our hope. Lord, I pray this morning that we would hear your words. Lord, that we would fall more in love with you today. Lord, that whatever we may be building our lives upon or basing our life upon or basing our hope on, Lord, if it's anything or anyone other than you, Lord, I I pray that you would allow us to let go of those things and to grasp firmly to you, our rock, our anchor, our savior, our deliverer. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What does Paul teach us this morning about? Because he, he names our hope. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope. And who is our hope? Jesus Christ. And here he gives us, I think, three, he teaches us three things about Christ, who is our hope. And the first thing he teaches us is that Christ is our only hope of salvation. Christ is our only hope of salvation. Verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Let's unpack some of this. When Christ appeared, He brought grace. That is, He is grace. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. God pouring out something good, a blessing upon us, a blessing upon the world, a blessing upon, upon the people in which we do nothing to earn, we do nothing to merit, we, we did nothing to work for. It is His grace, and His grace appeared. That is, at Bethlehem, when the incarnation happened, when God became man. Uh, up to this point, there was, there was a bit of separation between God and, and creation, God would appear, he would, uh, he would appear, but he was mediated in different ways. He, he, he appeared through visions and dreams, and, 
And sometimes he would, he would appear, um, the angel of the Lord would arrive throughout the Old Testament, but he was here and he was gone, and he, and he, he, he appeared in different ways. And then in Christ, he didn't come as an angel. He, doesn't, he didn't come in the form of, as we've been studying Moses, he, he did not appear as a burning bush or as a consuming fire. God became man. Scripture says in John 1, and dwelt among us. This great appearing to bring salvation for all men. Not just a particular family, not just a particular nation, not just a particular city, not just... But salvation would be offered to the world regardless of who you are or where you're from. For all people. Scripture tells us in Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no name, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved than Jesus Christ. He is our only hope. Jesus said as much himself in John 14.6 when he looked at his disciples and said, I am the Y'all help me. Our Awana kids, we'll bring them back down here if we need to. Right? Miss Amy's here. She can listen. She'll check you off. And she's tough, too. You're not getting a piece of candy if you don't know your verse. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Not all roads don't lead to heaven. <laughs> don't just follow your heart. It's only through Christ. He is our only hope of salvation. Now, we get deceived because we live in a world that believes that we can save ourselves. Now, if you think about it, there's there's one thing that creationists and evolutionists agree on. And that is we we both agree that we did not create ourselves. Even evolution believes we, we didn't make ourselves in a lab somewhere. We come up with a different process for it. We agree on that. We disagree on... We we can agree that much on the beginning. We disagree upon the end because we believe we cannot save ourselves. The world lives in a delusion that we can save ourselves. But history has shown us no amount of totalitarian power can save us. If you gave... even if we had the, uh, uh, a loving dictator that said, just give me all the power and I will get rid of all disease and wars and fightings and all of that, and we said, okay, we'll, we'll turn everything over to you for our safety and security, that never leads to ultimate salvation. We have seen totalitarian empires rise, and we've seen them what? Fall. No amount of worldwide unity can save us. This week, world leaders gathered in Paris and signed... God, they got 150 nations to agree on something about reducing um, the global earth temperatures and carbon by one degree over the next like 30 or 40 years, if you can understand that. It's interesting. It, it took them a while to come to an agreement. If you see part of the, part of the thing, there, there's words that are in brackets and parentheses in which they... 
they squabble over the language, but it's, it's funny, the same group of people can't agree. They can't agree on whether Coke or Pepsi is the proper drink. And yet we can decide that we're going to reduce and save the world through carbon emissions. No amount of technology can save us. This is tough. I mean, we think we see the, the effects of technology, how technology um, can make our lives easier. Who wants to go back to a time before electricity or lights or even the Internet? I mean, who really? How many of you, like, you, I, mean, I mean, I'll say I will start to break out in highs if I can't get a signal. I will. I'll break out. I, if I can't get connected, I feel like I'm not breathing sometimes. But no amount of technology can save us. Right now, there's uh, one, of the, one of the guys we say is, you know, so smart, Elon Musk. He's, uh, he brought us, he's brought us the Tesla, which is one of these cars that is all electric, and it'll go about 200 miles on a charge, and it'll go 0 to 60 in about three seconds. It'll put you in the back seat if you hit the accelerator. The same guy that started his own company, you know, so I'm, I'm going to start my own company. I'm not going to start just like a, a convenience store or a barber. Say, I'm going to start a company called SpaceX, and I'm going to go um, to the moon. Okay? And uh, so it's a smart, a smart guy. His Teslas right now have a feature called autopilot. I know some of you wish you could put your car on autopilot, or, you know, you wish you could take the wheel from the person who's driving from you that they has a button called a mode called autopilot in which the car is driving itself like 90% it's doing 90% of the driving honestly not 100% but 90% even this guy has said uh, in um, went to MIT he said um, we should be very careful about artificial intelligence calling it our biggest existential threat he says this, and I quote, with artificial intelligence, we are summoning the demon. This is a guy that doesn't believe in God. And he even, he, this is a guy all in on technology who, who even says the next stage of technology, it scares him as to what technology can do. There's no amount of technology that's going to save us. There's no amount of education that can save us. Right now, we have access to more knowledge in the palm of our hands than at any other time in human history. And we have access to it everywhere. We have access to more knowledge, yet we're dumber than we've ever been. We have access to, we have access to more knowledge, yet we're no more wise, we're no more moral. Education cannot save us. No amount of financial resources can save us. Economies and stock markets rise and fall, and at the end, you cannot take it with you. No amount of science can save you. Who's grateful for science? It's done a lot of awesome things, made our lives a lot better. And yet, even as far as we go with medical technology that we have, we can hook you up to a machine and we can keep oxygen flowing through your blood vessels. We can keep your body alive. But we cannot capture your soul. We can't download it. We can't transplant or revive your consciousness. We can't. No matter what we can do to extend life and extend the quality of life, 
And there, there's a lot of research in this area going on right now. Still can't save you. Christ is our only hope of salvation. Christ is our only hope of salvation because all of these things that the world looks to as what we call like functional saviors, where we try to put our faith, all of those are good things. Science, technology, education, finances, all of those are good things. God created all of those things. They become wrong when they become our only hope, when we place our faith and trust in them. Christ is our only hope because those things cannot save us. Those things presuppose and our culture forgets that our ultimate problem is not a lack of technology, it's not a lack of education, it's not a lack of finances. Our ultimate ultimate problem is something called sin. And we live in a time and we live in a culture that is redefining sin and banishing sin from the dictionary. But yet sin is... Sin is something that we cannot see, that we can't touch, but we see its effects. Amen. If we're honest, we know, it's, we know it's there, and it's not just, sin is not just something in, in uh, Child Evangelism Fellowship they taught us to teach the kids, sin is every thought, word, or deed, anything we say, speak, or do that displeases God. I love that definition, and it's a great way to define Uh, what I would say, sins with a little s, S S-I-N-S. The things we do, the actions we do. Yes, those are sins. That's not even our ultimate problem. Our ultimate problem is not just that we do sins, but that we're what? We're sinners. That sin is not just something we do. Sin's not just like we've caught a cold and we need to uh, get some rest and drink some water and all of that. No, sin gets at the very fiber of our being. We are fallen. It's not just something we do. Sin is in us and through us. It's inherited into our very nature, our very being. And And yet God... did not look upon us and say, these guys aren't just halfway broken, let's just duct tape them back together. Yet God did not just look at us and say, they are simple to the core, and say, I'm going to wipe them out and start over. But God, in His grace... God in His grace said, I am going to save them. That's the miracle of Bethlehem. The miracle of Bethlehem is that the only way that we can be saved, for the wages of sin is death, the only way that we can be saved is if someone pays that penalty that we owe. As we, we talked about this last week, we can't pay anyone else's penalty because we owe, we owe our own penalty. We're under our own penalty. Only God can pay the penalty for someone else and only, only a man could represent another man. So in Jesus, you have holy God in perfection, blameless, who could pay the penalty, who becomes man, who then represents mankind. 
who stands and on the cross took all the sin of all the people for all the time. He has paid the penalty for our sin. On the cross, He paid that penalty. He broke the penalty. On Easter, rising from the dead, His resurrection breaks the power over sin because the penalty over sin was death and rising from the dead, He proved He he was who He said He was and He did what He said He was going to do. I want to ask you, have you been placing your faith and trust, your hope in anything else? Because there's a, there's a day, there's a time that's going to come when you are going to take your last breath on this earth and you are going to cross the veil through which no, no probe has ever gone and returned. And where all it's going to be is you and God. Where is your hope? If your hope is in anything other than Jesus Christ, I'm afraid to tell you, He's the only one that's gone through the veil and back and ripped it in two. He's the only one who rolled the stone away. He's the only one. No one the disciples didn't gather over Him and put, put a little smelling salts under Him to like shock Him awake. No one came and cast a spell over his body and did, you know, said some magic words and said, Arise. Sorry, that was Mark Solo this morning. <laughs> he rose himself from the dead. All for me and all for you. He is our only hope. So I want to encourage you this morning. Christ is our only hope for salvation. Number two. He teaches us Christ is our only hope for sanctification. Christ is our only hope for sanctification. He says in verse 12, he says, for the grace of God, in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's Jesus. He's come. And, And then not only bringing salvation, but verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So you might say, well, well, preacher, I got that. Pastor Jason, I've got number one. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. If you've got number one, awesome. You've made the most important decision you've made. You've come to the most important part in your life. But it doesn't stop there. It begins there. But that's just the beginning of a journey. That's That's a beginning between here and there, between now and the not yet. Sanctification is, is the process by which, through this life, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we grow closer and closer in, into the image of Christ Himself. So that no longer does sin reign, but the Spirit rules transforming our lives, our character, our emotions, our actions, not from the outside in, not like the Pharisees, a list of rules, but from the inside out, 
a new heart, a new soul, a new mind that then transforms us. And Christ is our only hope. And He came not so that we would just, okay, you have been pardoned and just hang on till I get back. No, He came that we might rise above the sin and the mire in which we are infected with. Training us. Training us teaches this this sanctification process. It's discipline. It means it requires something called work. We don't like to use the word. Work is like a bad word in our time. And yet, there is work involved, not in our salvation, but in our sanctification. Verse 12, training us. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. There's two parts to this sanctification. And elsewhere in Colossians chapter 3, Paul uses the language of putting off the old man and putting on the new man. Of putting to death the sin, the deceit, the bitterness, all of those things inside of, inside of us that point to sin and the flesh and all of those things. To put those to death. He calls it the um, mortification is the word. And uh, there was an English Puritan called John Owen. And he wrote a book. I've got it in my office. It's a little paperback book. He was a Puritan preacher. And his book is called The Mortification of Sin. And Puritans had some awesome like titles for things. Who writes a book and calls it The Mortification of Sin today? And like people actually buy it. No one would buy that book today. But the idea of mortification of sin is, he, he used this quote that sort of frames the book. He says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Yeah, that's his, that's his famous. Because the book is all about how to, how to do that. We don't like to talk about those things, but there is an idea in which in disciplining, we need to consciously and, and, and intently put in control those areas in our life that get out of control. Take those things in which we say, I, I can't do it, it's out of, my, out, of my, out of my, that's just the way I am, our weaknesses or sins, and say, no, that's not just the way I am. Christ died so that I might be free of that, and by the power of the Spirit, I'm going to put that under God's authority in my life. And I'm not going to be content. How many of you would be content to have a python live in your house? No hands, I'm looking. No hands. Well, it's just there. I mean, it keeps the the mice away. But uh, I sure do miss my dog, though. And um, we did have three kids. We're now down to two. You laugh. But we do sin the same way. We leave it. We, We accept Christ. We begin. We accept Christ. Thank you, Lord, for forgiving me and securing my salvation in you, and then we're content to live our whole lives and let the serpent have his way. 
in our lives and in our homes. And we just, we just get used to them always being there. Instead of doing what Adam should have done in the garden, cut the head off of that snake. That's part of sanctification is putting to death, putting off the old man. I want, I want to encourage you. It, it doesn't matter how long that snake has lived in your house. No matter how long you've dealt with that particular sin, put him out. And if he tries to, if he tries to crawl his way back in tomorrow, put him out again. And put him out again. Why? Because Christ died so that you might be free. Put off the old man. Sanctification is also putting on the new man. He says in, he says in here in verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And to what? Live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Meaning, hey, part of sanctification is not just stopping bad things in your life. To stop doing sins. But it's growing in grace. It means growing in mercy and love towards others. It means growing in the thing we talked about a couple weeks ago about in forgiveness. It means, it means growing in love toward one another. Putting away our prejudice, putting away our pride, our selfishness. And putting on the unconditional love that Christ has for each one of us. Sanctification. The last part of that, verse 12, calls us that sanctification, he says, what is in is for this present age. That tells us, uh, raise your hand if you're in the present. Some of you are already, you may be thinking about the future and what you're going to do as soon as the preacher, you know, gets done. Some of you are thinking about that. Right now, we're all in the present. What does that teach us about sanctification? So long as we're in the present, so long as we exist in time, we're going to have to be doing these things. This putting off the old and putting on the new, that's not something that we ever say, okay, I check that box, next box. Some of you are checkboxers. You check off your boxes. You think, okay, I've done it. If you're like my wife, like your to-do list, you write down the things you forgot to put on your to-do list and then mark them off. Like you've already done them, but then you write them in and mark them off just so you can show that you've done them. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have a list. I don't. I'm not a list person. This is not something we can... You know what? If this is on our list, it's on our list every single day. And it's not going to be easy. It's going to be work. But, he says, it's just for. Not only is it for the present, but we could also say it's just for the present. One day it's going to come to an end. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ is not only our only hope of salvation, our only hope for sanctification. He's our only hope for glorification. And glorification is 
That point in which we cross from this life to the next, the point at which our sanctification, our discipline, our training is complete, and Christ in His return then transforms us inwardly, outwardly, completely. He finishes the work within us. Jesus' first advent, Christmas, heralded our redemption and the release from the power and penalty of sin. The people who have been in darkness have seen a great light. They rejoice because finally we can have redemption. Jesus' second advent, this is what Paul was looking forward to. That one day, Jesus is going to come. Our blessed hope, the glorious appearing, He's going to come. His second advent will bring our freedom from the presence of sin. Now we live as free men and women because we are no longer under the penalty anymore. Can I get an amen? Amen. We've been forgiven. We no longer have to worry about the debt to weigh us down. We've been forgiven. When He comes in the clouds, we rejoice yet again because then we will be set free from the bondage of this life. Romans chapter 8, 22 says, For we know, again this is Paul, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. He reiterates in Romans chapter 8 that when Christ comes again, not only are spirits regenerated, but then our very bodies will be regenerated and made new. John Piper, in teaching on this, this, same, this same passage many years ago, calls this hope the second coming of Christ. He says this hope is is blessed. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope. It's a blessing. It is going to be better than any Christmas parade by day or by night. It is going to be incredible. It's blessed. It's visible. Romans chapter 8, Paul gets into, hey, we hope for that which we cannot see. And we can't see it with with our eyes. And we can't touch it with our hands. But it's confirmed by God's Word and His Spirit living within us. And one day, faith will become sight. One day, the eastern sky will open. And Jesus is coming back for His own. That will be a day in which our hope is no longer invisible, but is visible and present with us. And it's a glorious hope. One in which the glory of God will set 
foot in his fullness on this earth. And by his very word, the nations will bow down to him. And all the things, all the things that were wrong, all the things that have gone wrong, all of those things will be put to right. Romans chapter 15, Paul closes, which I know Paul was Baptist because he closes, but then he has like a whole other chapter, like after his closing. So I feel him. I feel him. He went to seminary, I know. (laughs) Rabbinical school. He did go to a pharisaical rabbinical school. He says in Romans 15, 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Why can the Christian rock out? That's technology. That's technology. Why can the Christian have hope in dark times? Why can the Christian have, have hope when you turn on the TV and things are going upside down and going crazy? How can the Christian have, have hope when we see the terrible atrocities around the world and it's even come to our own shores? How can the Christian have hope? Because our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in our Lord and Savior. Our hope is in the Eternal One. Our hope is in our Redeemer. Our hope is in the One who conquered death and hell itself and our hope is in the one who one day will come back for us and as we close today I want to encourage you is your faith and is your hope in Christ alone if it's not I encourage you to put your hope in him for he will never leave you or forsake you. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word this morning. We thank you that you don't leave us alone. You don't leave us to live in fear. You've conquered fear. Lord, we thank you that no matter how difficult life becomes, no matter how much suffering we may endure in this life, Many times it seems overwhelming and we don't understand why. God, we trust you. And we trust that you give us hope not just for this life, this present age, but you give us hope for a future. And a future that you have accomplished. Lord, I pray that we would respond to your grace and your love Lord, that we would come to you in salvation for you are our only hope in salvation. Lord, I pray that we would come to you for sanctification to grow to be more like you because you're our only hope for sanctification. We can't fix ourselves, make ourselves more righteous. Lord, you're our only hope for glorification to pass from this life to the next. We give these things to you. We give this time of invitation to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me as we... Respond to the Lord.